Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hey guys, this is episode 23, and Today's episode is a very special episode for me. Um, today's guest is Dr. Amy Avazadeh, the Egg Whisperer. And for those of you who have not met her, you're missing out on a really, really great human. Um, if you haven't figured it out yet, her patients are her biggest fans because she listens to us and because I think she gives us hope. Um, and not like unreasonable hope, like we're not delusional or anything like that, but I think she, um, believes in us and, um, that's so important. Um, so I first found out from Dr. Amy from a friend of mine, I encouraged her to get her eggs frozen because she was turning 35 and I didn't want her to experience what I was experiencing because at the time I was just turning 40 and, um, I was going through, was planning on going through my second cycle. I did my first one a couple of years prior. Um, so she found Dr. Amy, found out that a lot of her patients were 40 and over and that she had this podcast. And so she encouraged me to contact her um, because I was like on the verge of starting another cycle. Um, because Dr. Amy had such a huge impact on me and teaching me what happens to our fertility as we age. I wanted her to come back and discuss some of these things because I think it's so important for us to know. Um, I think it is really, really helpful for women to know this information so that they can advocate for themselves and advocate for their own testing or you know, advocate for a physician that's a good match for them. Not every physician or team or clinic is going to be a good match for you. And I think it's important to find that good match. Um, I think when you find that good match, magic happens in that you're able to collaborate as opposed to working against each other or finding that you're not trusting your physician or your team or anything like that. So I think it's super important. So today we tackle each a decade of our childbearing years or 20s, 30s, and 40s, and what happens in each of those decades and what we should consider during that time. So, you know, when we should consider uh, fertility uh, preserving treatments, um, or, you know, as far as IVF goes, things that we should think about. And we also um, answer your submitted questions at the end. Um, I will, I want to share the story of actually how um, Dr. Amy and I, I know gave you a brief version of um, how we really met. Um, so if you want to skip this part, you can jump ahead to the episode. Um, but I, if you're wanting to hear how amazing uh, Dr. Amy is, then keep listening. Um, but be warned, it's a little bit long. Um, so as they say on TikTok, it's story time. <laughs> so I just finished my first cycle about two years prior. So around 2019. And my first IVF doctor was not helpful or supportive in any way. He did not believe in acupuncture. He said that doesn't work. He didn't believe in supplements. He said it didn't work. So he's like, just forget it all. Just, you know, do it. He didn't tell me to limit anything. He didn't tell me about any books to read. He didn't tell me anything. Like he just gave me my medications and he gave me my schedule and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. So I finished my cycle. I had no normal embryos and he kind of just shrugged it off. And he just told me, he 
he called me and left a message. I was at work, so I couldn't answer my phone. He left a message and then he sent me a message through the patient portal and he said, let me know how I can help you. Uh, there was no WTF appointment. So there wasn't like, uh, hey, come back in. Let's talk about what things we can try next time or maybe what worked, what didn't work. There was no discussion whatsoever. It was just, you have no normal embryos. I'm sorry. Um, let me know how I can help you. So um, I just felt kind of dismissed. And at, at our first appointment with that first IVF doctor, he had already brought up donor eggs because of my age. And at that time I was 38. And so he was already saying, actually, when I first met him, I think I was about 37. I didn't get started until I was, I think, 38. So he had already brought up donor eggs and it was already in the back of my mind because I thought that was the only way, because it seemed to like what he was saying was I was too old. And that was the only way that, um, I might get any success was through donor eggs. So um, after that, I I thought that I had no chance. I thought uh, after my experience with him, I thought that um, it was game over. I just probably would never be a parent unless I used uh, creative family building methods. Um, and so after a little over a year, I, I reached out to another fertility doctor in the area and I scheduled an appointment. I did a consultation and her feelings were very, very similar. She said, you know, when your embryos came back, there wasn't just one genetic abnormality. There were multiple genetic abnormalities and that's not looking good. Your egg quality is pretty poor. So you're probably looking at donor eggs at this point. Um, you know, you should think about it, but you're still making blasts. So if you want to try, then we could try, but I just don't think that it's going to be very helpful for you. Um, you should really consider donor eggs. And then she also encouraged me to do IUI. She said, you can go back to your uh, previous clinic and do IUIs. And she said the previous clinic, because I had insurance coverage for IUI. She said, you know, you can go back, try some IUIs, and if it doesn't work, I, I felt like she was like, well, there's no hope for you, so you might as well just like try whatever's covered by insurance. Um, I didn't get the feeling that she was like, you know, let's see what we can do to get you an embryo, or let's talk about how you feel, or, you know, what is it that you want? It was just like, mm, I don't think there's any help for you, so um, we can do this, but really you should look into donor eggs. And then as far as protocols, I remember her saying like, you know, at this point, um, I would max out on medications. I would essentially do the same thing that we did in the last, uh, in your last cycle. Cause she had my records and she looked at them all and she said, you know, I probably would just do the same, uh, like the same protocol that you did last time. Um, and she, you know, no other additions, no, any, nothing new to try or anything like that. And I, I didn't know any better. I didn't know that there were different protocols. I didn't know that there was anything that you could try. And I didn't know where to go. Before then, I had no idea. There was this whole Instagram community of people who like are willing to share information and kind of share their experience. I had no idea that existed. And so I didn't know any better. And so I was like, okay. And she had reasonable pricing at the time. Um, I could do essentially, because I had diminished ovarian reserve, essentially three cycles for the price of one and a half or so. And I just thought, well, okay. And so I was like ready to go. I was just, I was ready to start. And um, my friend that I talked about earlier, who I had encouraged to get her eggs frozen, um, she said, you know what, before you start, like, can you just please talk to 
um, this doctor in the Bay Area, um, the egg whisperer. And I'm like, I'm like, is it really that different? Like, she just told me she was going to do the same protocol. Like, doesn't everyone just do the same protocol? Like, what's really different? What's how is she really different than anyone? (laughs) Like, I was super resistant to it. And I just I just didn't think that it would make a huge difference. But I was like, you know what? I'm 40 and she sees a lot of patients over 40. Maybe she has something different to offer. And my friend just said, you know, she also has this podcast. You should really listen to it. So I was like, okay, I'll check it out. So um, I booked a consultation, but unfortunately, this was like in the heart of the pandemic. So it was a few months wait. Um, I don't know. I wanted to say maybe like, three or so months um, I was waiting, but I was waiting for the other fertility doctor I was going to start with. I was waiting to start with them anyway. So I figured, well, that's fine. Then I'll just go ahead. I'll just like figure it out. So I booked a consultation and then I started listening to um, her podcast and I was like, oh my gosh, this was everything I wanted to hear and everything I was wanting to know and all the questions I had that no one really answered. And to be quite honest, I didn't ask because I didn't feel like I had the space to do that. Um, and so I was I was like totally blown away. I binge listened. I couldn't stop. It was everything I wanted to hear. And I thought, wait, maybe I don't need Donor, maybe I can still try with my own eggs. Maybe I don't have to use donor eggs. So I finally got to meet her over Zoom. I did my first consultation with her over Zoom. And what stood out to me that I don't, I don't necessarily feel like I got in my previous appointments was that um, she would pause and listen. Like, I feel like there was open space for me to talk. She wasn't talking over me. I didn't feel like I had to rush to get all my thoughts and feelings out before she had to rush and get off the call or anything like that. And then she would sit in silence and wait for me to speak. And she would ask me if I had any questions, like multiple times throughout the call, she would ask me if I had any questions. And then the second thing was, she didn't tell me she was going to do the same thing. She didn't say, oh, I'm just going to max you out on medications, period. She said, okay, these are some things we can try. There are some challenges, but let's, you know, let's think about some of these options. And um, she sent me this long list of resources and we discussed things I had never heard of before. Um, at the time when she was talking, we brought up HGH. We talked about red light therapy. She brought up PRP. Um, no one had ever like mentioned these things to me before that it was an option. And I knew a lot of it was like, experimental, but you know, if I'm trying with my own eggs and I have really terrible eggs, then I mean, I'm willing to try if I'm not ready to give up on my own eggs. And you know, I said, I'm not ready to give up on my, on my own eggs. And she didn't push me to use donor eggs. She said, you know, there's no rush to get to donor eggs. They'll be there. You know, donors will be there. And, you know, if you want to try, then, you know, let's do it. I think it's worthwhile. And oh my gosh, like for the first time, I didn't feel completely dejected after her the visit, I felt like there was some hope and not false hope. Like, I don't feel like there was false hope. She was still very real with me. 
Um, and so I did my first cycle with her and I made an embryo and it was the first time I ever made an embryo. So super stoked. Um, I kept going cycles three and four were a bust. Um, but you know, there's no way I would have gotten that embryo without her. I think everyone else pushing me to donor eggs, I would have already given up. And, um, I'm so grateful that I even have a chance. I have a chance with an embryo. I mean, who knows? I don't, I don't know if, you know, there's still the worry that it may not you know, survive the freeze thaw. Um, but I mean, it's a chance. And she's always given me that opportunity. And, you know, I'm there will be a day, I think, where she says, okay, you know, and enough's enough, you're not, you know, it, it's, it's time. So I'm, I know that that will be coming, because I'm almost 42 at this point. And already, you know, my AMH is dropping. Uh, my FSH isn't doing too bad, at least at this point in time. But I know that day will come. But um, she gave me a chance. You know, I made an embryo and there's no way I would have made a normal embryo with, without that opportunity. Um, so before the second cycle um, is when this podcast was born and it was inspired by her work because I was so, when I was learning all this stuff, I was so angry that I was learning this stuff so late in life in that I wanted to get this information out there to other 40-year-olds and those who were younger, those who were struggling with fertility. I wanted to make sure that they had reputable resources um, to go to and to get information because, you know, they're not necessarily get going to get this from their fertility doctors. I certainly didn't. I didn't get it from my OBGYN. I didn't get it from my first two fertility doctors. And so... I'm like, oh my gosh, it took me getting to Dr. Amy and finding her podcast where I really understood that, oh my gosh, there's this plethora of resources out there and there's so much information we need to know about ourselves and so much I don't know about our body, my own body, you know? So that's kind of how this podcast was born. My goal and mission was always to help educate women and give them resources so they can plan how their family is um, built and plan um, what, you know, path and tools they can use to help expand their families, you know, whether or not their family will stay um, too, or their family will grow um, into um, a bigger family. Like I wanted to be able to discuss all these things. And then what happens to your body? I really wanted to um, talk about that as well. The difference between your 20s, 30s and 40s, because I no one ever told me this. And I really having that information would have made such a big difference for me. Um, and so, you know, as I was building this podcast, I, and I was starting it, I kind of reached out to her and I said, um, so I think I'm going to do a podcast and I would love to have you as a guest if you're open to it. And she said, yes, like without hesitation, like without a thought, without, like I asked the question and it was like, boom, yes. Like it was, and I was just so, floored. I was so grateful um, that she was so open to this. And this is like the level of support she gives you. She's just, you're like, not just a patient to her. She supports you in so many aspects. And I mean, she's talked me off so many ledges when I message her and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like, my AMH dropped. And she's like, it's okay. It's not your, it's not tied to your worth. And I, I just can't say enough good things. I know I sound like a total fangirl because I am because I had never had someone be such a fierce advocate for me. And it is so, oh, I didn't know this was going to happen. Um, It was so meaningful 
to have someone listen to you and you finally feel heard, you know, and it is so um, important and really changed my perspective and experience with infertility because I felt like there was no hope. I felt like there was no chance and someone finally gave me a chance and this it was um really meaningful to me. So whew, sorry guys. <laughs> I did not expect that to come up. Um uh Dr. Amy, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for setting such a high standard of care in the fertility space. I don't know that I would have had the opportunities that I had without um, your commitment to your work and your passion um, for creating families and building families. And um, you will forever hold a special place in my heart. And I can't speak for all your patients, but having met so many of them, I think their feelings are mutual. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you so much for all you're doing for all of us fertility patients. Um, through your work as a physician and through your podcast. Um, thank you so much for being here for all of us. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode. And today I'm so excited I have Dr. Amy with me. Um, hi, Dr. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much hi. for making time. It is so awesome to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me on. <laughs> so I have to tell the story of how I found you and um, how uh, you like changed my life um, because I was um, looking for, I'm like all nervous now. I was looking for um, a new fertility doctor because I first had my first IVF experience and it wasn't that great. I was like 38 and then um, I was telling one of my friends, I'm like, you have to freeze your eggs. She was turning 35. And no real plans um, for her. And so I was like, okay, you have to freeze your eggs because I don't want you to end up like me. And then so she was looking for people and she wasn't excited about the people in our area. And so she found you and she said, oh, my gosh, have you heard of the egg whisperer? And I was like, no, I've, I haven't heard of her. And she's like, oh, my gosh, she's got this podcast. And the majority of her patients are over 40. And at the time, I was like 39 turning 40. And um, I was like, oh, okay, I'll check it out. And then your podcast is like what I needed in my 20s. I feel like everything you had on there was so valuable. And I learned so much because I learned nothing in my first IVF cycle. And when I heard your podcast, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is what 20, 30 and 40 year olds should have heard, you know, when they were younger, but in their 20s. But it's out there now for the 20 year olds. So thank you so much for creating this. You're so welcome. And I would say even 50 year olds, the age at first birth, I predict in the next 15 years could even shift to the age of 50. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And 15 year olds don't understand their fertility, even if they've stopped having periods because of what they're seeing in People magazine. They think that medical doctors like me have this power to regenerate and help them regrow eggs. And yeah. we just don't. Yeah. So I kind of want to start with um, how you entered into the fertility space and then maybe even um, a little bit about how you started your podcast, because it's been such a big thing for so many people. Yeah, so for me, as far as being a fertility doctor, I have a gene, and it's called Help Anyone Who Wants to Have a Baby. Have you heard that? <laughs> <laughs> 
I was born with it. It literally came out of my mother's uterus. And I'm like, yo, uterus? You want to have a baby? <laughs> Anybody want to have a baby? I have, I have girlfriends now that call me. They're like, I need to ask you a question. I'm like, oh, my God, you want to have a baby? And they're like, no, Amy, I'm 50. Like, stop doing that to me. Like, it's about my rash on my back. <laughs> um, so my grandfather and my father, both OBGYNs, just in my blood. And my mother had many miscarriages, countless miscarriages. And that left, you know, a, a significant mark on me as a child. And I really wanted to help women who have miscarriages and women who have pregnancies that miscarry, we are the subspecialists that are here to help you. And it's a medical problem, and sometimes you can find a solution. A lot of times you may not, but that's, that's kind of why I feel like I was put into this world, to help women who wanted to have a baby, have a baby, and also to help women who've had miscarriages know that there is hope for them, and sometimes a cause that we can find and a solution. And my podcast was basically to share a message of love and hope with as many people who want and need to hear it. I cannot be a fertility doctor for every single person in the world. I just can't. But I can educate as many people who are able to download my podcast. So that's kind of why I started it, so that I can basically, you know, shout with a megaphone, here are my egg whisperer golden rules. I want everyone to learn what they are. So no one can look back and say that they didn't know, right? So if a 50 year old is coming to me saying she didn't know that a fertility doctor can't help her regrow eggs, you know, I still need to be doing my podcast. Yeah. No, I think it's, it, I think it's wonderful because I, like I said, like this is the stuff I feel like I, I wanted to hear in my 20s. And I know a large part of your patient population is in their 40s. Do you find that you have women coming into you saying, no one told me this. I wish I had known. Yes. Even people who have PhDs, medical doctors, they feel like they were misled. They spent so much time in their OBGYN's offices over the years, every one to three years, getting these annual checkups. And no one just brought up hey, you know, how old do you, do you think you're going to be when you're going to have your first baby? You know, maybe we should get things checked out for you and start making a plan. And so I'm all about making that plan, pre-planning the plan before the plan <laughs> so that you're as prepared for the plan in case the plan doesn't go right. <laughs> yes. Well, that's why I love you. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, test me to the gills. Like I just, you know, I have like one embryo left. And one of the things that I think is um, amazing about you is that you are just like so invested and I feel like I'm your only patient and I know I'm not. <laughs> I, I know that I'm not, but I sure feel that way. And I think that that just speaks to how dedicated you are in helping your patients and particularly us who are 40 and over, we feel like, I mean, most of us are not delusional. <laughs> most of us know that there are st statistics working against us. Um, and so it's hard to balance the science plus balance the statistics working against us and maintain that hope. So we're, I'm just so grateful for you and um, the gene that you possess. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, um, I don't know where I heard this quote, but hope never killed anybody. Mm -hmm. Right. And hope to me is being positive and practical. So have only 
practical and positive expectations. I'm not going to sit here and say that I can help every single person that comes to me over the age of 40, but I can make sure that I give them the best experience I can. I know there's so much fertility whiplash that happens with each visit, but if people at least know what the worst case scenarios are up front, then they're prepared for whatever may happen. So they're not derailed emotionally, psychologically with their relationships. It still happens, of course, Yeah. yeah. but I like to prepare people as much as I can. Yeah. Well, it, for this podcast audience, um, the audience is pr- primarily 35 to 45 with a sprinkling of those who are under 35. And so I wanted to start off with kind of your experience with the 35, 40, 41 and older. What do you find are the struggles that you're seeing for like the 35 year old, the 40 year old and then the 41 plus? Yeah. I mean, the 35 year old, a lot of times we see women who want to get help and their OBGYNs are dismissing them, still giving them the wait a year line. And that's really hard because waiting a year at 35 could mean potentially waiting too long to maybe bank enough embryos for your second baby, if that's something that you needed to do. Or the frustration that goes into not getting a diagnosis when you were younger and feeling like you missed out on an opportunity. So you know my tushy method. Mm -hmm. Yes. So so if you're someone who's 35 and you're, you know, you're struggling, don't wait that year. Don't wait six months. Get a checkup sooner than later. And a semen analysis is sometimes something that is often not recommended until six months or a year later. And that's such an easy test to do. And I also tell women to start CoQ10 as soon as they meet me. So if let's say you're 35 and you you were thinking about having a baby start CoQ10 at 35. I tell every young person, like the 20-year-olds who come to me for egg freezing, the 30, 40 to me is young, any single person who's thinking of having a, ba- having a baby, I always recommend CoQ10 until you're done. And I think I'll have maybe in 20 years, a whole bunch of people calling me and saying, Amy, I use that CoQ10 and I started when I was 25 when I met you and I didn't have to use my frozen eggs. And that's, I mean, not that I expect that to happen, but I have a sense that maybe we'll find in studies in the future that women who took CoQ10 long-term might have had less fertility struggles. So like um, you would say like 35 people tend to get dismissed more and then like say around age 40, are you finding that it's an egg quality or egg quantity issue. Yeah, and I think at age 40, when you're going to your OBGYN, you get dismissed even more because they don't believe in your fertility. Mm. And you're going to an OBGYN because you think that they have the experience of being a fertility specialist, not realizing that when you walk in there at 40, all the people that they're delivering are in their early 30s, for the most part, depending on where you live in the country. Mm -hmm. And so they're looking at you, oh, there's no chance you're going to get pregnant anyways, wait a year. Mm -hmm. Rather than saying, don't walk, but run to your nearest fertility clinic, get your levels checked, and start banking embryos if you really want to have more than one baby if you don't already have one at home. So it's just a personality thing, a cultural thing in the community that, that you live in. Certainly there are OBGYNs that are like, oh, you're 40, if you wanna have a baby, just here are some referrals. But there are still some that try and give patients fertility pills or say you should wait six months or a year. Or I've even had OBGYNs, you know, obviously they're Mm well-intentioned. I don't know what their reasoning was, but let's say someone had a miscarriage at 40 and they'll say things that are just so untrue. Like, oh, you had a miscarriage, that means you have a really good chance of trying, uh, uh, sorry, you have a really good chance of 
getting pregnant again, mm-hmm. keep trying rather than, oh my gosh, like this is a good sign, but you should go see a fertility doctor right away, mm-hmm. you know? Or they'll give patients birth control pills for a year. I've seen that too, Mm -hmm. where they'll say, oh, you need to wait after your first miscarriage and you need to take these birth control pills. And that just kind of blows my mind and gets me all kinds of fired up. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, I that like all of those scenarios like literally happened to me. Like at 35, I asked for an AMH and I did not get one because my or my OBGYN was like, ah, don't worry about it. I was 37. I was fine. I didn't have trouble. You have plenty of time. Don't worry about it. Go, go try. Because at the time, I think it was like, yeah, I think it was 35. So she said, try for six months. If you can't do it, come back to me and then we'll decide what to do. And I was like, well, I just because I had Googled and found about uh, found out about an AMH and I was like, oh, maybe this I could do this. And at the time, that's your only resource for many people. They don't know that they can reach out. I didn't know I could reach out to a fertility doctor and just say, hey, can you check my levels? So, I mean, that scenario like actually happened to me. And I know like so many women who share the same feeling of being dismissed multiple times, or even if you're 40 and have a high AMH, I mean, there's been a few of those stories too, that they're like, oh, you're safe. You have a high AMH. You're good. Don't worry about it. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, at, in, at 35, I would say if your AMH is high, remember that your fertility isn't just about your AMH. You could have blocked tubes. You could have fibroids in your uterus. You still need to do a complete check. And if your AMH is high at 40, Don't let anyone tell you that you have the eggs of a 25-year-old because your age is still the most reliable predictor of egg quality. It it overrides every other aspect of what's going on, like your FSH, your estradiol, your AMH. Those are far lower if I were to predict someone's fertility than age. So age would be number one that I would use to tell someone what their chances are if they were to, let's say, go through an IUI cycle or an IVF cycle. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. We we're talking about 40 year olds, 41 year olds. Now let's go to like the 20 year olds, right? These like prime fertility. So in our 20s, what does our fertility look like? And then what are, say, you know, the possible problems that can occur at 20 that people should know about? Yeah. So for most women in their 20s, your egg quality is going to be excellent. However, I think it's really important If, let's say, your mother had a hard time getting pregnant with you, or she needed IVF, or there's a family history of fibroids, or a history of endometriosis, or you have symptoms of endometriosis, you should get checked out a little bit earlier, maybe even by the age of 21. And if, let's say, you think you're someone who might want to have kids in the future, by the age of 25, let's get checked out. I mean, we're still spending a lot of time in a gynecologist's office. We don't have cameras or ultrasound ability with our fingers when someone does a pelvic ultrasound, a pelvic exam, ultrasound is still going to be the easiest thing that, and the best tool to guide us as far as what's going on in with your reproductive organs. So if you have any symptoms of endometriosis, um, I would get checked out by the age of 25. So, uh, I think if you're struggling to conceive in your twenties, the oh you're young keep waiting that you mentioned to me at 35 i see that happening even more to the 20 year olds and if you're having a hard time getting pregnant in your 20s it's really something that you shouldn't again walk to the fertility doctor you should run to the fertility doctor say why am i having miscarriages at 25 like why is it taking me more than six months at the age of 25 because most people should be getting pregnant pretty easily when you're in your 
20s. And if it's not happening, you should see someone and figure out why it's not happening. And like I said earlier, take CoQ10. Yeah. (laughs) And the worst case scenarios, you know, for people who are, you know, trying in their 20s, let's say if you're doing IVF or IUIs, you know, if you had a hard time getting pregnant, the worst case scenarios could be that there's an egg quality issue. Even though you're young, I've seen that before. It's not typical. It's, It's very unusual and not to like create fear in people, but that's why I advocate for getting checked by the time a woman is 25 so that she doesn't look back and say, why did I not know this earlier or sooner? And what happens if, say, you're 25 and you get dismissed by your OBGYN? Can you just contact your local fertility doctor or what would you recommend? Absolutely. So many, if not most, fertility clinics have a a type of appointment that's called a fertility check. So most of us have that. I have that. It's my eggwhisper.com website. People can just go there. And most fertility clinics have the exact same thing. So you can get your fertility levels checked, get an ultrasound, talk to someone about your levels, and then you can feel like you have a pretty good sense as to what's going on. Yeah. Like one of the things that I just like spoke to me like on your podcast is when you like would say get your levels checked get your levels checked get your levels checked get your levels checked because I was like oh my gosh I was trying to do that and no one would do it and you're like just call me it's not a big deal like wherever you are I can help you I'm like oh my gosh I needed to hear that in my 20s because I was curious and so I think if it, and I'm I'm sure, like you said, because your 20s, you know, people are like, oh, you're at your peak fertility. You're good. Don't worry about it. So I I, th- I love the message that you should be checking early on. Um, now, this age group might also be on birth control pills. So is that an issue with getting your levels checked? Yeah. So birth control pills, the IUD, the Depo-Provera shot. So all of these mask infertility. They mask egg issues. They'll mask things like PCOS or primary ovarian insufficiency. So that's one of my golden rules that if you are on the birth control pill, before you get your next refill, get your levels checked. Before you get that IUD placed, get your levels checked. When you're replacing that IUD, get your levels checked so that you're not like caught wondering why you stopped having your periods after you stopped birth control pills and like feels so much anxiety about that. But if you had known over time that, you know, my egg count is changing and I should do something about it, you can still take the birth control pills, but maybe take some time to maybe freeze eggs along the way. Yeah. And I think when that scenario happens, sometimes there's the misconception that the birth control pills are what caused the issue when in reality it wasn't it was the underlying issue that existed prior to starting birth control pills right there are celebrities that i won't name any names mm-hmm. but have said things like the ivf meds put me into menopause or the birth control pills caused my menopause and we all know that that is not true it is fiction mm-hmm. it is a myth mm-hmm. so the birth control pills just prevent you from ovulating while you take them and you're, you still cycle through your eggs. You still run out of eggs slowly over time. The birth control pills don't make us do that. Yeah. And so that's the other thing, too, that I think I thought. So that was like the, the story that I played in my head. I was like, well, I was on birth control for like 15 years. Shouldn't all those eggs be like banked in my ovaries just waiting to be released for later on? I had no idea that you're still spending eggs even when you're on birth control. 
Like, I right. feel like that's something like people should know. <laughs> right. And I think on the other side, people think that when you're going through the egg retrievals, that you're taking out eggs that you would have been able to use in the future. And so you're spending all of those eggs in one IVF cycle or one egg freezing cycle. So you're going to go into menopause faster or sooner. So I've heard that as well. And I think that's logical. I think if I were to just ask, let's say I had 10 people in the room, nine out of 10 people, I would say, how many of you think that going through egg freezing means you're going to go into menopause sooner? Most people would be like, I do, but that's not true. You know, we are rescuing eggs that someone would have lost anyways in that month. Yeah. There's no risk of menopause from going through the procedure. Yeah, I, I learned that from you at 40. <laughs> like, I was 40 when I first learned that. And I was like, wait, what? I, I'm still spending eggs? Oh, my gosh. So I'm like for all the younger people out there, you're still spending eggs every month no matter what. So, you know, just be mindful. Um, so to recap 20s, peak fertility, uh, best chance for getting pregnant, which means if you're struggling, all the more reason to find someone to talk about these issues sooner. Correct. Exactly right. Spot on. Okay. Now let's do the next decade is the 30s. So what do we have to kind of consider in our 30s with our fertility? And then what are the things we should be most concerned about? And when should we kind of see you those worst case scenario kind of things for you? Yeah. So I am a fertility. What's the word if you're a financial planner? So I'm a fertility planner. Yeah. <laughs> You know, in your 30s, depending on how many babies you already have at home or if you don't have any at home, you want to start talking about because when you're in your 20s, you can't really see that. Mm -hmm. But in your 30s, you can start seeing how many kids I'm going to have, how old I'm going to be when I have my youngest, potentially, like kind of think through those mm -hmm. scenarios and start planning for that. And that's where getting your levels checked makes sense. And then you have to actually verbalize because I have patients that say, well, no one asked me those questions. And I said, mm -hmm. well, guess what? you will tell them mm -hmm. and you will say to your fertility doctor, these are my goals. This is how old I think I'm potentially going to be when I'm having my second based on my fertility levels. How can I best plan for what I'd like to see happen in my 30s or early 40s? Mm -hmm. And some of the worst case scenarios I've seen is people don't do enough egg freezing. Mm -hmm. um, or they aren't guided in the way that I'm gonna just share with you right now. So what I tell people is this. So if you're 32 years old and you think you wanna have at least two kids and you don't have any yet, freeze your eggs. Mm -hmm. And then if you're over the age of 37 and you haven't had one baby yet, please make embryos. Mm. If you're okay with being an independent mother mm -hmm. or freeze more eggs. Because what's happening if you're waiting past the age of 37 to have that baby, you know, that I can have it all mentality, mm -hmm. you may not because you don't know the potential of the eggs that you had frozen. So I've had cases where patients have come to me, you know, 10 years after they froze their eggs when they were 35, now that they're 45, they thaw their eggs, none of them turn into a healthy embryo. Mm. And they're like, Amy, how did this happen? I thought that... That was my insurance plan mm -hmm. and policy. So I've had enough of these experiences so I can tell people, look, freeze more eggs if you're going to be thawing your eggs at a time where you have no possibility of having a baby with your own egg just because of your age. So at 45, it's close to zero, if not zero, for you to be able to have a baby with your own eggs. And so that's why I'm trying to educate and inform people about these types of worst case scenarios while being very positive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I do it. 
<laughs> just because I don't want people to be scared about these things that can happen. But they can and they do. And there are a lot of people out there with stories like this. And so that's why I'm hoping that people who are listening to this, if you're listening to this and you're, let's say, 40 and you froze eggs and you haven't had a baby yet and you're not sure when that's going to be, but maybe it's going to be two years from now, maybe start thinking about making those eggs into embryos now or doing another cycle with your own eggs now, but making embryos with donor sperm. Mm -hmm. Do you find that, do you have a cutoff where you would recommend freezing eggs or embryos? Um, the cutoff isn't, uh, it just depends on a woman's levels, I think, too, and her, her history. But I would say that for me, I, I would, fr- I freeze the oldest woman's eggs that I've frozen is 51. So there, oh. there is it. Yes. So, um, yes. Oh, I, and she was just one of those people, like uh, she just happened to be able to give me an egg. Mm-hmm. And so that egg is still frozen. Yeah. Right. So, but I don't recommend that. Obviously, I believe that everyone gets, if a 50 year old man came into my office and said, I wanted to freeze my sperm, I would never say no. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Never. Mm-hmm. So if a 50 year old woman who has eggs left comes in and wants to freeze them, I'm not going to say no. Right. I'm going to say, I will be happy to do that. But just repeat after me. There's a 0% chance with today's technology that this embryo will, this egg will turn into a healthy embryo. Although if it did happen, I'd like to be on CNN talking about it. <laughs> I'm here, so we can do that together. Um, but, you know, things change with technology. I don't see them changing right now. But at some point, I think things are going to get better and we'll be able to offer women something other than what we offer them now to have babies in their 40s without going through all the trouble we're going through. It's not going to be anytime soon, but maybe in like five, 10 years, we're going to see some technology coming through. Mm-hmm. So if you're in your 30s and you're not quite ready to have children, how often should you get your levels checked? I mean, it depends on what your starting level is, but maybe every two years or so. But I don't want people to react to levels. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So if your levels are getting, if you're now seeing your FSH is over 10 and your AMH is under one, that's not the time to freeze your eggs, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is if that's your first data point. The data point that should drive you to freeze your eggs is when your levels are good. So when egg freezing first started, that's what people were doing. They were waiting until they were 37, 38. My average egg freezer back in 2014 was 39 years old. Mm. Okay. And now my average egg freezer is like closer to 28 years old. So I have Mm. a lot of egg freezers that are between 25 and 39 now. So most women aren't freezing eggs over the age of 40, but I do have some that still do. And I encourage that if people, you know, want to still preserve their fertility, not knowing what the future holds for them, because there's still a chance. But that's kind of how I talk to people. So if you're not yet ready to look at egg freezing, or maybe um, it's something that you're kind of putting off a little bit and you want to check your levels, would you say like once a year and you're starting in your early 30s when you're 30 and then see? Potentially once a year, once every two years, just kind of see how they're trending and just realize that AMH also stands for always meandering hormone, right? Mm -hmm. So it does fluctuate. And, you know, one year it could be a little bit higher, a little bit lower than the next year. And then the next year it could go up a little bit higher. And that can confuse people, but that's actually quite normal. So AMH levels don't drop like suddenly from year to year. They just have a steady rate of decline. And sometimes they go up and down depending on the cycle. And if you see a level that's just kind of off, realize that there can be lab variation. And I would just repeat the level to make sure. 
And that's a good point. So if you see a really high AMH level, that's great. But it could also be wrong. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen it before. So if the next level is a lot lower, don't think of it as, oh, my goodness, all my eggs have disappeared in the last year. Think of it as, oh, that first level might not have been correct. Mm-hmm. So that's why I always tell my patients, don't rely on just one snapshot in time. Mm-hmm. Do more than one level check when you're first starting to check. Just kind of see what's mm-hmm. real and accurate. And that's why seeing somebody and doing an ultrasound is helpful in that situation because the follicle count is associated with the AMH for most people. Mm-hmm. So if your follicle count's really high, that means your AMH is probably going to be really high. If your follicle count is low, I mean, it means that your AMH is probably also going to be low. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in our 30s, um, you you had spoken a little bit about the statistics in our 40s, like over 45 is almost zero percent. Right. So statistically speaking, around 35, 38, what are our chances? Because I think at 40, you said we have like three percent of our eggs left at 40. Is that right? So uh, somewhere in between there and at menopause, we have like a thousand eggs or something like that. Right. So what about somewhere around 35, 38? What does that look like? Well, 35 to 38 is still, for me, a time where I believe that my patient's very fertile and has a really good chance of getting pregnant. And most people can still get pregnant between 35 and 37. It might take a little bit longer and there might be miscarriages along the way. And that is part of the normal human experience for so many people. We just don't talk about it enough. So I would say that if you're over 35 and you're hearing lots of stories about geriatric pregnancies, just realize that that really doesn't apply to you. I mean, that's just a silly terminology that we use and still feel really hopeful and that you have a good chance for pregnancy, but also think about that next pregnancy. So I think a 35-year-old, let's say, going through egg freezing or IVF, the average number of eggs is probably around, you know, around eight to 10 Mm -hmm. that we'll be getting with each egg retrieval. And that can result in at least one healthy embryo per IVF cycle. And some people still need to do several cycles in their mid thirties. And then when you're 37, for example, you know, the, the rate of euploidy. So that means the the likelihood that an egg is genetically normal goes down. So it's about 25% per egg when you're in your late thirties. And then when you're 40, for example, it's down to like 10% per egg. So that's why it's just so hard to get pregnant. You can have a lot of eggs, but the likelihood that that egg has what it takes to turn to healthy embryo just goes down a little bit with each year. And unfortunately, it drops a lot more after the age of 37. So if you take, let's say, a woman who's 28 years old and compare to her to her own fertility at 30, not a big deal right? 28 Mm -hmm. to 30. Mm -hmm. But if you look at someone's fertility, 38, and look again at 40, it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. Things change pretty rapidly between 38 and 40. So that's why I say, if you're 37, just go right to the IVF doctor and talk to them about your goals. Because if let's say you're 37 and your goal is, I want three kids and I want them to be with my own DNA. The only way you can do that for the most part there's going to be the rare person that can have a baby at 37, a baby at 39, and a baby at 42. And they're bragging to the whole world. So they're, you know, they're at the neighborhood party bragging about it. So you think that that's the norm. Mm-hmm. But the norm is, in order to have a baby at 37, 39, and 42, you would have had to frozen eggs or embryos or both, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's, it's not that common to be able to do that if you're starting your family at 37. So if you, that's your goal, you want to make sure that you're talking to someone about that that has your best interests in mind who will help you do that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, that scenario, and I think we hear it too. Um, so I'm just going to jump on my soapbox really quick. Um, but like, so like celebrities who have these kids at like 47, you think, you think to yourself, and I understand needing to keep their life private, but I think at the same point in time, there are some of us who look at that because I did it and I'm like, oh, she had her baby at 47. It's still possible. I know it's hard, but it's still possible. But we don't talk about whether or not the eggs were frozen, if it was donor egg or anything like that, because we just think, oh, like, oh, I'll probably be able to do it. Like 40s are like the new 20s. (laughs) I'll be fine. Right. Exactly. And I think it's it's I think there should also always I think there should almost always be a disclaimer at the bottom of those articles that say cannot confirm or deny how this pregnancy came to be. Do not be misled by the by this story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, something like that. Yeah. I know it's not gonna happen. Right. But I mean, like statistically speaking, if we're saying that it's less than one percent after forty five, it's like super, super small. I mean, I know it happens, like we hear it, but you know, it it's something that I think people should just be mindful of that like Yes, it, it doesn't mean don't try. And especially if you have someone like you in their corner, because, you know, I've gotten some messages where people say like, my, you know, I went to a doctor and they won't even let me try with my own eggs. They just say immediately go to donor eggs. So I think, you know, but, but knowing that those statistics may work against you not to um, be like negative or pessimistic, but just to be mindful and educated on the statistics behind what can help you um, or, you know, what you're working against is important so that you don't feel totally devastated when you come out of a failed cycle, your first cycle, thinking like, oh, I thought I was going to walk away with 20 embryos. Right. And I feel like when you talk to a fertility doctor and you're over 40 and you want to try, even though the recommendation is donor eggs given your levels, I think it's really important for you to say to the doctor, I totally get the statistics, but part of my journey is is making sure that I never look back and wish I had tried with my own eggs. And that's why I tell people, I say, look, we don't have to actually get to IVF. If you want a chance, we can at least say by starting medications, seeing how your ovaries respond, then you can actually see, oh yeah, I don't have an egg that's growing. Mm. I don't have a chance of a pregnancy with my own eggs. And I tried and I did everything I possibly can with science. And now I'm ready to move on to donor egg. And I think that's an important part of the journey for a lot of women. And they want to be at least given a chance. And I don't think it's fair to deny them the chance, even if it's not going to work and we all know it. There's no harm in taking like five days of medication to see what's going on with the ovary. And sometimes you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say not so sometimes, but most of the time you're not. But at least you feel like you tried and you can go to sleep at night knowing that you did. Mm-hmm. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about kind of creative family building. Um, I know you and I have talked about this before, too, given my scenario. I have low AMH, poor egg quality. I, I know the statistics are working against me, but I'm one of those people who's like not quite ready. Yet. And I know I've vocalized that with your support. Um, you've always told me to kind of speak my mind and totally be comfortable doing it. So I'm grateful for that. Um, not everyone feels like they have that safe space to do it. So thank you. Um, but, you know, I'm one of those people who in the background, I know I'm, I'm looking at this stuff in the background. I'm thinking about it. Um, but it can be really difficult 
decision to make, and it can be really expensive. And so I kind of want to touch a little bit on your freeze and share program, because that might actually also benefit those who are younger, who also find that financially it's difficult to cover the cost of egg freezing, because that's one of the reasons why. And like, when I was younger, probably in my early 30s, I had heard about egg freezing. But during that time, we're like, oh, those are for those people, people who have money or people who, you know, whatever the the circle of people doing it at that point in time, or at least how we were taught to think of it was different. But now with all this education and information available, people can do it younger, but it's still cost prohibitive for a lot of people, particularly if you're in your 20s. So can you share with us a little bit about the freeze and share program? Yeah, I mean, you've described it perfectly. It's basically for women who want to freeze their eggs, but also are excited about the ability to know where their eggs are going. Mm-hmm. So that's the number one goal of the program, to make it reciprocal in terms of the openness. Mm-hmm. So egg donation programs, typically egg donors provide so much information of themselves, and then they wait 18 years for that knock on the door. I wonder what happened for 18 years until someone may or may not reach out to them, or maybe a pregnancy actually never occurred and they weren't told. You know, so I've actually seen that scenario where someone waited 18 years and then they were told that actually their donations never resulted in anything. So they thought that they had DNA out there and they never did. So for me, openness is very important. And I find the that it's very unfair for a recipient to ask all these questions of the donor and the donor to know nothing about where their eggs are going. So that's the beauty of this program, to, to match like-minded people and they know each other from the very beginning. And the stories that I've seen come out of the program are just beautiful and awesome. People become lifelong friends, like literally, like I've had egg donors ask the family to be in their wedding. I mean, like mm. you name it. I've seen, you know, I've, I've, the, the, the stories are just, they're very um, heartwarming and very touching. And I just feel like when the universe, when I have a patient that says I'm ready for this program, I, all of a sudden it's like someone appears and there's like, I'm interested in being a freezer. I'm like, this is just wild. Like I have the perfect family for you. And then it's all facilitated through a psychologist. And obviously there's legal paperwork, there's medical screening. It's very high touch and very involved for me, but also really fun for me for me to be able to make these connections between two families. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, uh, there's so many things I want to say. Okay, where do I want to go? Okay, so um, the first thing is I think that's a really nice option for both families who um, want to have um, a way to kind of help each other. Like it's a very altruistic way of supporting another person who's trying to build their family who maybe are struggling. So I think that's one, which is awesome. So that's one program that um, I wanted to talk about. And then the other one I wanted to talk about too, because I remember when I first heard you talk about egg freezing parties, I'm like, is this like Botox parties? So like do a group of people just get together and freeze their eggs? Um, So can you tell us a little bit about the egg freezing parties? Yeah, I mean, I would love that. I'd love, you know, if there's like five girlfriends out there and they all want to freeze their eggs, we can make it a party and you guys all cycle together. But the party is just really, for me, a way to talk to people about egg freezing in a party-like setting. Mm -hmm. And it came out of the home shopping party Mm -hmm. model. And I had so many people inviting me to their jean party and their purse party and their makeup party and their jewelry party and their embroidery party. 
And when I would go to their parties, because I would support my friends, they turned into like fertility parties. People would just ask me questions about their fertility. And then I just went, I was like, you know what? I'm going to Google something. Eggfreezingparty.com wasn't available. Literally, I bought it. I bought that <laughs> domain name. I did. And then Facebook and Apple came out and said egg freezing was covered. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my God, now I know what I'm going to do with the website. Because all of a sudden, just egg freezing interest shot up. And I just turned them into educational seminars, mm -hmm. talking about egg freezing, not selling anything, mm -hmm. just an opportunity for people to learn. And I've had pa pa patients from those parties years later. They said, I went to your egg freezing party six years ago. I'm like, that's so cool. And now I actually have moved them entirely online. Mm -hmm. So they're done through Zoom. You can still schedule one through the website. And um, it's about once every three months that I throw an egg freezing party online. Mm -hmm. And I think that's great because, I mean, that would have been great for me, you know, back in my 20s or 30s, or if I knew about a freeze and share kind of program knowing that, you know, I could have um, preserved my fertility in some way. I mean, like you said, it's no guarantee when you thaw the eggs, it could still be an issue. But I would be working with like 30 year old eggs as opposed to my 41 year old eggs, which are not very happy right now, which are like old and decrepit. And <laughs> they're just like trying really, really hard. They're working really hard. But, um, you know, if I had those 30 year old eggs, I feel like, oh, my gosh, I like at least that's my backup. Like if my eggs don't work, then I have another as I'm running out, I have another batch that I could try. Not necessarily right. know with like with certainty that it would help, but still it's like the genetics of it would have been a little bit better. Right. So, um, and so with this freeze and share or even, you know, the egg freezing parties, it, it offers us the opportunity to wait longer to carry a pregnancy. But I also kind of wanted to touch on, you know, because our uterus doesn't get old, right? Well, it does get old, but not at the rate that our ovaries do, right? So is there a time where you would say, you know what, I don't think you should carry a pregnancy. You should still, you can still have a baby through other, you know, um, creative fam family building um, methods. But when should we say, you know what, for the safety of the uh, mother or recipient parent, um, when should we say, you know what, maybe we should consider other options for carrying the pregnancy? Yeah, I mean, pregnancy is really hard on our bodies. I think if a woman feels strong enough and healthy enough to carry a pregnancy, she'd be given the option to do so. But I offered using a gestational carrier to all my patients over the age of 45. Most of my patients will carry their own pregnancy between 45 and 50. And then I would say over the age of 51, they will use a gestational carrier just because in our community, we kind of, as a community of fertility doctors, agree that if a woman's over the age of 51, it's probably safer for her to use a gestational carrier because of the risks of a cardiac event, high blood pressure, things that could compromise her life and health. I have my oldest pregnancy delivered. I think she was 51 when pregnant, 52 when delivered, and she did great. And I have another patient right now. I think she's 51 and pregnant right now with her second baby. Her first was when she was 49. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she's uh, she's amazing and super healthy, super fit. You know, I tell my patients, if you're planning a pregnancy over 45, you need to start training for a marathon right now. Literally, like a pregnancy is very taxing on our cardiovascular system. So you need to be in incredible shape. So, you know, think of it, the pregnancy as a as a marathon and make sure that you are trained for it and training for it and not just ready to, you know, 
gain weight and all the things that a lot of people have in their head is what pregnancy involves and entails. It should be the opposite. You need to continue to be as healthy as possible, be cardiovascularly fit during your pregnancy as well. And so in our 40s, so we said, you know, worst case scenarios in our 20s, best case scenarios, best case scenarios in our 30s, worst case scenarios in our 30s. What about our 40s? Best case scenario, worst case scenario. What does that look like? I mean, best case scenario, you're someone who hugs somebody and gets pregnant, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I dream of. <laughs> like, give me a hug and yeah. hey, I'm pregnant. Um, the worst case scenarios, and it sometimes is the best. I mean, it's just part of our biology is you use an egg donor and you get pregnant. And you get pregnant the first time, but it doesn't always happen that way. I have cases that I can think of right now, one in particular that will always haunt me. You know, someone who tried so hard with creative family building and still I wasn't able to help her. And I don't know that I will ever know why, but I just know that she's just such a lovely human being. And she was so kind to me throughout the entire process. And she knows that like we both poured our hearts and just worked so hard, but still weren't able to help her reach that goal through creative family building. So that's the worst case scenario is that even though you're using an egg donor, it is not a sure thing. Same thing with a gestational carrier. And so I think that is a myth that people think I'll just flip to egg donation and it's going to be easy. It still can be hard for some people. And then I know for your 40 and over, over um, I, I'll link this, but you have your Hocus Pocus uh, supplements that you like to recommend. What are your favorite re- recommendations for supplements? Yeah, I always tell people less is more when it comes to supplements. You know, I see like two pages, single space type of the supplements people are on. And I'm like, this is a full time job. Yes. to remember what you're taking and when. So I really want people to take a really good prenatal with vitamin D and fish oil, CoQ10, and then NR, which basically increases NAD. I don't have any affiliation with any company, but True Niagen is the company that I I tell patients to take because they basically are the first ones to market as far as invent, I don't know about inventing it, but creating it and bottling it. So that just seems like a brand that I can trust mm-hmm. and I have my patients take. Um, but there's so many other companies out there that make it as well. There's another supplement. I, 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 I also take these things for myself just because I track my levels over time just to kind of see what they are. And I, I'd like, to, I think that the NED has been helping kind of keep them nice and stable. Uh, but Terostilbene is another product. And I also tell patients, if you're not going to take that, take something similar to like a Berry or Zveratrol, pick one of the three. So those are my go-to supplements. And then if someone, let's say, has PCOS, I add an Ovacetol. If someone has endometriosis, I'll add an N-acetylcysteine. So it just kind of depends on a patient's situation and, and history. And I'll, I'll basically individualize the supplement recommendations for their case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I because um, I know that's what I did because my first fertility doctor did not believe in any supplements, didn't believe in acupuncture, didn't believe in any of it. He's like, it doesn't work. You need to just like do IVF. And so I was like, okay. And so after I started binge listening to your podcast, I was like, oh, I don't know about all this stuff. So I started looking it up and then I read it starts with the egg and then, you know, learn more about supplements there. So um, thanks for making it so easy for us to find out information. I know you have a couple of podcast episodes, too, where you talk about supplementation and and your recommendations for that. So um, I'll link uh, your episodes as well, too. Um, But people, I'm telling you, her podcast is amazing. (laughs) Like, you need to listen. Um, okay, I have some questions um, from um, some of the listeners, if you don't mind. Um, 
Okay, uh, this one is, um, what is a good protocol for low AMH endometriosis dermoid cyst that was removed? Okay, so how old? Do we have an age? Uh, no, she didn't give me an age. I'm guessing, I think I've seen her stuff before. I think mid-30s, 36, 37 maybe. So if she's mid-30s, I'll tell you what I would do in a case like this. I would talk to the patient about using HGH priming. So twice a week until your stem starts, then every other day during stem start. I would talk to you about using low-level light therapy using it most days a week because of the history of endometriosis especially. I think it may help. Again, we don't have really good studies showing that it, it does help, but the experiences that I've had with some of my patients have shown that it might be helpful in cases of low ovarian reserve and also endometriosis is using that. Obviously the supplements that we talked about and then consider intra-ovarian PRP. That might be something you wanna start off with and not just do if your first cycle isn't as great as you had hoped for. From a protocol standpoint, depends on the number of eggs that you have at baseline. I would say if the number of eggs you have at baseline is consistent with your AMH level, so let's say your AMH is 0.8 and you have eight follicles, go for it. Natural cycle start, try not to suppress your ovaries because you have a low AMH, and then start stim. Bank embryos, depending on the number of kids that you want. And then if the scenario of your AMH is actually showing us that your egg count should be higher and your egg count is actually lower, maybe see what your follicle count is post-ovulation and then consider mid-luteal phase start. So that's how I would think about a case like what you just presented. Okay. Um, what is your opinion on PRP with a low-level laser therapy? Um, I have very strong opinions, and my opinion is that it works in about 50% of people. The 50% doesn't mean those the 50% will get pregnant, but the 50% might see an increase in blast formation rate and a higher chance of having normal embryos. I mean, I've just seen some crazy amazing results lately. I had a patient who did three IVF cycles, no normal blasts. She's over 40. I got her two euploid blasts. Mm. She's never had a euploid blast before. Okay, and then I had another case, um, one follicle, one egg, <laughs> one euploid embryo. Oh, Blow your, blows my mind. And I mean, she went, she was perimen, she is perimenopausal, so she did PRP. And obviously, I can't say that these re results apply to everybody. Of course. But I've also had the patient who never did any of those things, and I'm still, I can still get results like that. You just, I just don't know if that is what helped or not. But the patients that I described to you had done IVF previously without good results. And so I can say that potentially the PRP helped them. Because mm -hmm. it was the only change between the others. The yeah. Yeah. I and mean, obviously it's a different cycle. So that could be the difference. But that was the only protocol difference we really made. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, do you always recommend Omnitrobe for women over 40 while doing IVF? I recommend it to everyone unless you have just straightforward tubal factor or a male factor scenario and you're under the age of 35. I always tell my patients there's something that might help with egg quality. Would you like to add it to your protocol? 
most people will say yes. So it's not just an over 40 thing. It's a everyone doing IVF thing that I just offer people from the very beginning, even my egg freezers. So if let's say you're 37 years old freezing your eggs with me, I'm going to include HGH in the protocol. Oh, okay. Um, what do you think about doing mini IVF for women 43 to 45 years old with an AMH of 0.6? Yeah, so mini IVF is actually the only thing that makes sense. So mini IVF means trying to maximize the number of eggs that you get without using $1,000 worth of medications every day. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make sense to put people on really high doses from the very beginning if your egg count is on the lower side. Mm -hmm. So mini IVF for some doctors, however, means only trying to get one or two eggs from you. Mm -hmm. But if your AMH is 0.6, I'm gonna try and get six eggs from you with a mini IVF type protocol. So mm -hmm. it's important if you are signing up for mini IVF, Ask your doctor, what is the goal number of eggs you're trying to achieve with me? Because I had a patient, this is a true story. She signed up for mini IVF and she had a follicle count of 15. And I said to her, I said, I just wanna make sure you know what this means, that they're not gonna get as many eggs as I would get for you, because my goal for you would actually be 15. And she's like, no, Amy, you know, I met with a fertility coach and she recommended this approach, so I'm just gonna go with that, but I'll be back if I need to come back. I said, no problem. Like, I'm all for like, just making sure patients' priority, priorities are always honored. Mm -hmm. And she called me crying, they only got one egg. And I said, but that is what mini IVF is in that clinic. It's one egg. So, but she's like, but I saw 15, but they were only able to get one. And that can be really distressing. So making sure that your expectations are met, obviously with fertility, our expectations sometimes are not met a lot right. of the time. So I think when you're signing up for mini IVF, you need to know the definition of that in the cycle that you're in the center that you're going to. Can you ever transition mid-cycle from like a, a traditional IVF to a mini or a mini to a traditional, depending on how you're responding? Yes. I mean, and that's the thing is when I do a mini IVF cycle, I'll start people with fertility pills and then I'll start introducing the injections. And if I see like, oh my goodness, like you have 12 follicles now, then I'm going to immediately increase your dose of medications to try and get the 12 eggs. Okay. My goal isn't to just get half the number of eggs. I always try and maximize the number using a gentler approach from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, oh, this one is, uh, what are options for those that have had empty follicles at retrieval at age 39? So empty follicles can usually means the egg was not mature enough or viable enough. Sometimes it can also mean that you ovulated prematurely. So the options would be increasing the trigger shot dosing, giving yourself longer time, so 36.5 hours from trigger to retrieval, moving your retrieval day by one day, so triggering a day later than you originally triggered, letting the eggs get a little bit bigger. So those are a few ideas that I usually have in a case like that if someone, let's say, comes to me for a second opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, how long should a 40-year-old wait between pregnancies? 12 months? Um, it, it, it isn't so much an age thing. So the best interpregnancy interval that will give us the lowest amount of pregnancy complications seems to actually be two years, 48 months. Oh. Wait, that's not two years. Amy, count. 24 months. See? Yeah. I had uh, champagne in my coffee. <laughs> that's okay. Can I have some? <laughs> Um, so uh, two years, but who's going to wait two years at 40, right? Yeah. So we've kind of agreed that 18 months might be the best, you know, kind of weighing both 
pregnancy complications and our desire to have another baby. So 18 months seems like pretty safe, but there are patients who are ready at six months or 12 months. So I just say, look, let's get your thyroid checked, your blood count checked, your vitamin D checked. Let's look at your uterus. How are you feeling? Do you feel exhausted or do you feel ready to take on another pregnancy? And I always get permission from the OBGYN who delivered that baby or did the C, you know, either vaginally or C-section to make sure that we're doing the safe thing as uh, always. So if the OBGYN gives a blessing that after 12 months, a patient can have another pregnancy after a C-section, I'm fine with that. But I usually recommend 18 months, even if you're 40, but most people don't want to wait that long. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, how abrupt is POI? I had a baby at 36, diagnosed at 38, and then a miscarriage three months later. I mean, POI is one of those things that doesn't happen overnight. So it was happening over the last 10 to 15 years in order for it to get in order for it to happen. So the signs were there. So if it's if it happened to you and you learned about it at 38, the signs were probably there even at 35. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and if and if you had a miscarriage in the last year, I would say you don't have POI. You probably have DOR. Mm-hmm. So in that scenario, if they had been checking on their fertility, they would have seen a trend of their AMH dropping over time and kind of, it, it would have maybe sounded alarms or anything. I'm not saying this yeah. person did anything wrong. I'm just trying to um, make an argument for checking on your fertility earlier, <laughs> sooner. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. Few precious euploids on ice exam slash tests uh, recommended prior to transfer at 40. Yeah, I mean, I like to take patients through implantation testing, the ERA test, the EMA test, the ALICE test, the Receptiva DX test, cavity evaluation. If anything autoimmune resonates with you, consider seeing a reproductive immunologist before you start transferring. If a history of miscarriage, go through my angelmethod.com, just the, the, the little steps that we do to make sure that we're doing everything possible to prevent a miscarriage. Not that we, we can, mm-hmm. but at least we go into the transfer knowing that there's nothing that we could have missed that we could have done differently. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some ways to lower FSH levels? Supplements, DHEA, HGH? Go back in time. <laughs> I think that there's this idea that we have control over these levels, like your blood sugar or your cholesterol. Like if your cholesterol was high, guess what? Go on a treadmill. Start eating better. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works with our FSH level. If your FSH is high, you can't go on a treadmill and get it down. Your FSH is just a data point. It's a diagnostic tool that teaches us about your eggs. It's not something that needs treatment. And I feel like I'm seeing that concept more and more. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what you do to lower your FSH. You can't. I mean, you can trick your body into lowering it. There's certainly, you know, herbs that you can take that have estrogenic properties that mimic mm-hmm. estrogen. That lowers FSH. Estrogen lowers FSH, but other than that, your FSH is just a sign of what's going on with your ovaries. It's not a test that we need to treat, like a glucose, a blood pressure, an F, uh, a cholesterol level, a vitamin D level, right? If your vitamin D is low, you can take vitamin D and increase it. If your AMH is low, you can't take CoQ10 to increase it. However, I've seen situations where intraovarian PRP can increase AMH for a very short period of time. And I've seen situations where, for example, and I don't know why some people respond to it and others don't, but taking NR, nicotinamide, riboside that I described to you, might in some people slow down the decrease in AMH. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that it necessarily changes that quality. 
Um, when when is it time? Oh, this one's a tough one. Um, when is it time to give up on your own eggs? Forty one AMH of four FSH of eight all in P moles. Um, no PGT allowed. I would say you get to make the decision when it's time to stop and when it's time to move on. I mean, I have patients who have really low levels and really good levels and they're over 40 and they say, why would I put myself through IVF for a low chance? I can just go to create a family building for over 50% chance. I would tell a patient if your eggs aren't mature, if they're not fertilizing, even if they are mature, if they're not growing to the blastocyst stage, it's time to stop Mm -hmm. because your chances of getting pregnant naturally at home are going to be just as good as doing IVF if you can't reach those milestones. Maturity, fertilization, blast formation. Then it's time to stop. If you don't have any of those things in your first cycle, I would say it is still worth considering another cycle, but you have to realize that there might be at least a 50% chance or better that the exact same things will happen. You have to be okay with that. And then before you even start that next cycle, always talk about what would I do if the second cycle resulted in the exact same things as the first cycle. So you're prepared for what that next step could look like. So you're less overwhelmed about the negative result that you might get. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what are, I'm going to blend these two questions. What are your observations of 40s, uh, patients in their 40s uh, who've had PRP and your opinions on ovarian PRP for DOR? Any success? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so many cases, and I'm trying to write them up actually as we speak to to share a, a series of patients who've gone through it over the age of 40. My patients over 45, I've been able to get more eggs out and, and make embryos for them, and they never had that before, but I haven't been successful with them. Mm-hmm. So I feel like your age is still really important when making the decision about doing intraovarian PRP or not. I know there are physicians out there who've done intraovarian PRP for women over the age of 45 that have had success. Mm-hmm. I have not yet. And they see a lot more patients than I do. Mm-hmm. But the sample size that I've, from the sample of patients that I've seen, I haven't had success in women over the age of 45. But under 45, I have. When do you normally recommend the PRP to people? Like in which They're- patients? Uh, So anyone who's done a previous cycle that wasn't successful, anyone who has low ovarian reserve, no matter their age, and then I'm now moving to just talking to everyone about it over the age of 37 and just seeing if it's something that they want to consider. Because the last thing that I would want someone to feel is they weren't given an option to do something that they would have done had they known about it. Mm -hmm. So I have patients that, let's say, have gone through a cycle and I'll bring something up after the cycle didn't work. And they would say, like, why didn't you tell me about that first? So I learned that lesson very early on as a doctor. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I think it's really important to give people all of their options and then they can decide if it's something they want to do first or not. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we have enough information about PRP and why it works in some people versus others. And I feel like there probably is a gene that some people have that makes it so that they're more responsive than other people. And I'm trying to find what that gene is. Yeah. <laughs> just just a small task of finding out what that gene is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, I know for me, you mentioned PRP um, from the get-go, HDH PRP from the get-go. And I remember thinking, because I was still at the time, I I didn't know. I, ha- I was looking at a couple of different options. And so I asked around 
to a couple of other fertility doctors, too, about PRP and HDH. And it, it was kind of dismissed, particularly because I think it was about a year or two ago. And they're like, well, there's just not enough information. But I'm like, but what if I want to do it? <laughs> you know, like, what if I'm willing to take that risk? What if I'm willing to say, you know what, it, it, given that my option is donor eggs or, you know, nothing, I, I want to still try. And if it can give me a small chance, I would want to like try it and say, okay, I tried it. It didn't work. That that one was on me because I I knew that going into it that it was a 50-50 or whatever you know the statistics are. Um, so I, having both experiences, you giving me the option to choose, and then having someone just saying no, it's not an option. I won't even like talk about it. Was I mean for me, it it meant everything to have that option to say, yeah, I'll try, and if it doesn't work, then I know, okay, I, I'll sleep better, like you said, at night saying, I tried as hard as I could with my own eggs, and I just was unsuccessful. It's easier to walk away. For me, anyway, I can just speak to how I feel. It's easier for me to walk away and say, okay, I'm, I can close the book on, I, I can close the book on this part of my life now and, and try something else. So for me, I, I was very grateful for that. Um, okay. Last question. Do you suggest true nitrogen and bean for uh, every woman over 40 plus? The answer is yes. Um, true niogen, however, does have a side effect of making you feel anxious when you are not mm -hmm. for some people. Um, very rarely I've had patients who get very sleepy on it. I've probably seen two patients have that side effect. Mm -hmm. So it's not for everybody, but now they've come out with a powder packet so you can titrate the dose and take even less. And I always tell people to start with 150 milligrams and then go up. And if you're a very sensitive person to things and actually have baseline anxiety, I recommend the powder packets. And you can also get liquid Truniagen and just use drops first, see how you do, then increase the number of drops till you get to 150. And then maybe transition to pills if you feel good on it, but some people just feel really good on the liquid version. So it's just really important to know that the capsules are not for everybody because you might have a reaction, but you can always start lower with the powder or the liquid drops. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, you're one of my favorite people. So like, thank you so much for being here. Um, any last bits of advice for people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s? Hmm, things that make <laughs> deep thoughts. I mean, I would just say be really kind to yourself and love yourself super extra right now. You know, to say that we're living in unprecedented, unprecedented times is, I mean, that word just, it's like what word can come up with what we're living through right now? And we're all so stressed and so vulnerable to what's going on around us. And I'm just a very empathetic person. Mm -hmm. And I just feel for every single person who's struggling out there with all the negativity that we're seeing. So I think my best bit of advice is just, like I said, love yourself extra mm -hmm. and know that you're worth it. You're worth the extra love. Mm -hmm. So no matter what is going on around you, know that you are so important. You as a person and your goals are so important and just don't ever forget that. Mm -hmm. And this is like a little snippet of your um, ask the uh, egg whisperer show so if people want to connect with you or if they have more questions with you or for you or if they want to work with you how do they reach you how do they connect with you the easiest thing is just go to my website d-r-a-i-m-e-e -E, or dramy.org that's the easiest way you can sign up for a class you can get to my podcast from there very easy to do okay and same thing with the if they have a question for the show or anything like that too 
Yep. AskTheEggWhisperer.com. There's a, a Google form. You can just fill it out and I'll get loaded up for my next session. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be with me, Dr. Amy. Um, I am so, so grateful for you in like so many different reasons why I'm grateful for you. But you've always been like, honestly, when you say you're like people's best cheerleaders, you really are. You're like one of the best hype people like on earth. And um, I think every single person is so lucky to be able to get to work with you. And I'm so grateful and honored to um, have you in my corner cheering me on. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I feel the same way. Getting to help amazing people like you is just really incredibly special for me. And these are lifelong relationships for me. Do you know what I mean? It's like knowing that I'm helping amazing people be loving parents. There's like no better way to make the world a better place than to fill the world up with loving parents. Oh my gosh, you're the best. Um, you have an open invitation if you ever want to come back, if you ever want to come back and chat. I'm like, I'll talk about anything with you. So, oh, Thank you. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes, and I hope to see you back again soon. Bye.